Hi there, welcome to a special episode of They Live By Film. Adam here just giving a really quick introduction to our first interview of 2022. Uh, Chris was really lucky to sit down with Kirk McDowell from the George Eastman Museum and they had a fantastic conversation about film preservation. Hope you enjoy. So yeah, Kirk McDowell from uh, uh, many things, but I think most recently uh, currently working at the George Eastman Library and Museum. Uh, is, is joining us today. So Kirk, thanks so much for making time for this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think just right out of the gate, I feel like I want to do this because I had to look up George Eastman and then I was super embarrassed that I had to look it up um, <laughs> because it's so central to like my whole world, but it's sort of like the guys behind the guy behind the guy, right? right. So um, do you mind spending, uh, you know, just maybe 30 seconds or 60 seconds just kind of introducing you know, because George Eastman, for those of people that don't know, was like one of the original basically creators of like the modern camera, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was this sort of museum that was attached to his legacy, which has now become a major film archive in addition to the other kind of moving images and, and just in general. So like, do you mind kind of doing an intro into that and just to get people grounded in what the museum is as a whole and then kind of, you know, the, your, your role within that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I should say at the outset, I'm probably not um, the best ambassador for the museum just because I'm so new. Um, I've only been working here for a few months, um, but my grad program was here. Um, so I do know a little bit. Um, but essentially, the timeline is, yeah, so George Eastman was one of the founders of Kodak, Eastman Kodak, um, which was the kind of um, brought about motion picture film stock. So it's really kind of the beginning of cinema um, he was involved in. And um, after his death in the 30s, um, the house, he lived in this kind of ornate mansion, uh, East Avenue here in Rochester, um, was the mansion was used for the president of the University of Rochester. Um, the president of the university would, that would be their house during their tenure. Um, and so for a while it was that. Um, and then in the late 40s, there was kind of a growing movement um, to do something with the house to make it kind of a museum. Um, and so that kind of coalesced in the late 40s. And in 1949, the museum opened. Um, and at the same time, the film department in the museum opened. Um, this fellow, James Card, was the first curator. And he was a very passionate collector. Um, this was kind of at a time when film archives were really becoming a thing. Um, the 1930s, when the transition from silence to sound happened, um, a lot of silent films were just kind of like tossed off and destroyed. Yeah. And so a lot of people became concerned about this. And Iris Berry at MoMA and uh, Henri Langlois at the uh, Cinémathèque Française and a bunch of people ended up, you know, founding these archives all over the world. And so George yeah. Eastman Museum was kind of one of the American ones that was um, cropping up at that time. Um, and so, yeah, it continues to be one of, it has one of the great uh, film collections in the world, uh, especially uh, silent film. Um, which is kind of one of the strengths of the collection from the beginning, um, but continues to be. And um, yeah, they, it is one of the institutions that has a, um, it was the first, I believe, uh, training program um, for film archiving and film preservation and restoration. Um, and so I, sorry, go ahead. It's like, a, it's like a master's degree, right? It is. They have a certificate program and a master's program. Um, and yeah. I went through the master's program um, a few years ago. And the past two years, um, I've been working at the Library of Congress National Audiovisual um, Conservation Center. And then I got this position here. 
That's great. And what exactly do you do? What is your role now? So I'm assistant collection manager. Um, so I'm on the collection management team, which basically just means um, all of the kind of um, maintenance and um, and jobs associated with keeping the collection and processing the collections um, in the moving image department. Um, wow. So there's three of us and it's a lot of, um, you know, it's a lot of inspecting film um, and the associated catalog records with that. Um, it's a lot of shipping film. Um, you know, we ship a lot of film, whether it be for film festivals or venues that are screening films that are in the collection or preservation work. If we're sending out, you know, a film element to a lab, um, or if, you know, some of our collections are on deposit. Um, obviously the big one I'm, I'm assuming we'll talk about later Warner Brothers, but there are other collections on deposit where, where they need films shipped out. Um, so that's a big part of it too. And then the other part is kind of um, incoming collections, incoming films through donations or other means and kind of um, going through that whole process as well. So. It's, what an amazing job. Um, so you went through this master's program, you graduated and there was one stop before Library of Congress, if I remember reading your LinkedIn profile or did you go straight there from? Uh, I, it was a pretty quick uh, transition. While I was in the program, I was working at a media transfer uh, company here in Rochester, which was great Maybe kind of to see the commercial end of things of, you know, getting people's home movies that are on all these different formats you know, from eight millimeter and super eight to all the different, you know, VHSC and high eight and all these things and transferring those. Um, but actually, yeah, right after I graduated the master's program, um, I ended up getting that job at LOC. And then I was there really right before the pandemic started um, right. until um, October. So. Wow. So I, I want to spend the majority of time talking about George Eastman, but I'm also very interested in Library of Congress. So like to the extent that you can talk about it, I know it's not, you're not there anymore now, but like, is it awe-inspiring when you walk in there? Like, like how big is this archive once you're actually kind of in behind the scenes? Oh yeah, the facility, the NAVSTC is a is a awe-inspiring facility. It's it's a right. strange experience because it's it's in Culpeper, which is kind of out in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. Um, but the facility was largely funded through a um, donation from David Packard of you know the Packard Hewlett Packard family. Right. Um, and I believe the kind of the trivia fact with that is that it's the largest donation by a civilian to the government um, that's ever been made. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's a huge facility. Um, and uh, there's just, you know, there's, there's three floors. Um, there's a whole section for moving image. There's a whole section for recording sound. And then there's a whole wet film lab. And so there's just all this stuff going on there. It was kind of, it was incredible to work there. Um, I, my position there was actually mainly with um, incoming copyright. Um, I was okay. kind of in this copyright unit, but I also worked a little bit um, in the nitrate vaults there uh, with George Williman, who's just a great guy and very knowledgeable. And, um, and yeah, it's incredible working with that collection. Ah. Yeah, see, I, I know there's, there's probably a lot of reasons why they can't open it up for tours, but it would just be amazing to kind of they walk do. through this. They, they, um, I, I think it's been shut down because of the pandemic, but they traditionally, I think they've started, and I'm forgetting what day it is, but usually it was like a certain day every year, they would kind of have an open house. So oh, if I can, yeah, that's something to check out um, if they start that up again, you know, as things um, kind of open up a little bit more. Um, but definitely recommend if anybody's in the area for that. 
And also they do a, um, they do a festival that's been obviously off these past two years called Mostly Lost, where they screen a bunch of films, a lot that are unidentified and people in the audience just come and will kind of like yell out things if they recognize the film or <laughs> the film, which is a really, I, yeah, I'm sad I didn't get to experience that while I was there because I really always wanted to go to that, but. What's that? There's there's one of the subreddits that's like basically like, can you help me find this? You know, like I, I have like tip oh, of my yeah, tongue. Tip of my it's, tongue, yeah. It's like a tip of my tongue for uh, festival. That's amazing. <laughs> right. Um. So okay. So now you're working with with George Eastman. You're working as an assistant collection manager. Um. Do you you know how how are you getting requests for prints and things like? Is it daily? Is it you know hundred times a day? Is it like like what's the frequency that you're kind of getting processing these requests and and getting new prints shipped out and like how, you know, what? Yeah, I mean, I'm still getting into the flow of things. I think a lot of it changes um, by season. I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of, cause you know, festivals really ramp up in the spring and the summer. So oh, I think yeah. there's a lot more requests for, for prints for festivals then. Um, but right now, you know, after, after the holidays and everything it's kind of more of a slower um, period. Um, for me right now, so it's all of the staff members in the department are also involved with um, teaching the students that are in the Selznick program. Okay. Um, and so because of it's, it's kind of a slower time right now, I'm actually like helping to teach right now. So I'm teaching small gauge, you know, eight millimeter super eight and, and all the weird ones like 17.5 and 22 millimeter and everything. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, is it is it only with the school or separately like commercially do you also have a, like a film restoration lab where you can do that work in-house so the in-house so yeah so there's a we have a facility um called film preservation services that's yeah. um, part of the museum but it's out at uh kodak park um the old like the old kodak um facilities um oh. and that's where all of our scanning is done um, but the museum itself does not have a wet lab. So if we're doing any photochemical work that gets sent out to one of the labs, you know, whether it's color lab in Maryland or Haga film in Amsterdam, one of those wet labs. Interesting. Is, uh, is the whole entire collection digitized at this point? No, no, not by a long shot. <laughs> okay. And actually, so the, the museum has a policy that, um, that it will only digitize films that have been preserved photochemically. So the museum considers, will only consider a film preserved if it's photochemically preserved. Um, it does not digitize film unless it's been photochemically preserved. Uh, what, what does that mean exactly? So that means creating, so if you have like say a, you find an old print of a lost film uh -huh. um, and it's a, it's a print. Um, so, you know, if we get money from, you know, the Packard Humanities Institute or something, or the National Endowment for the Arts or something to get that film preserved, then um, we send the film um, to a lab and create like a dupe negative um, and then a print from that dupe negative um, that, and say that print then can be screened in the Dryden, which is our theater here. Um, yeah. But the, um, and, and so that's when we would consider the film preserved is when it's um, been preserved onto new, you know, polyester stock, and the original does then not have to be touched from then on. I got you. Um, okay, because there is a risk of the original prints like losing uh, or like fading over time, right? Like that is that is a risk, right? That is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, that was the whole. I, I know that was one of the conditions. Uh, is called vinegar syndrome, right? That's not the only one, but that's one of the things. 
right, vinegar syndrome for acetate-based film um, is a real issue. And in fact, we have, a, we have a whole room in the basement that we just call the vinegar room um, where all of the, uh, all of the, the acetate film that is, um, and I'm trying to remember the scale, there's a scale of vinegar syndrome, um, but I think it's like four and above then gets the film is, is unsalvageable and is relegated to the vinegar room. Oh no, and does it actually smell when you walk in? Oh yeah. In fact, I used to, oh, really? <laughs> it smells strong. I mean, before I had ever seen the vinegar room, um, I, when I would walk into the building when I was a student, um, I kept smelling, I was like, there's like, it's like vinegar chips. I kept smelling this like vinegar chip smell. And it was the, the vent from that room was actually coming out of the building at this one spot where I would walk in. So that's why I kept smelling that. But it's, no. it's a really strong, um, you know, acetic acid smell. Wow, interesting. Um, okay. And for, for the films that are in the archive uh, that have been preserved, y'all screen, I think I read, is it 300 screenings a year at the, at the theater at the Dryden? It's a lot. Yeah, I think right now it's about five days a week um, screenings in the Dryden. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a ton of stuff always going on. Um, I just introduced a film there last night. Um, we were okay. showing Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Um, which is in the Criterion Collection, um, yes. but yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of screen, and it's a whole mix of um, it's a lot of films from the archives, obviously, um, so, but it's everything from old Hollywood films to new premieres. I know we're showing, I think in a few weeks we're showing Drive My Car, um, wow. so there's yeah, it's a whole mix of stuff. That's crazy, uh, and I, and I know that you said you're you're kind of getting rolling, but once you're running at full speed, are you engaging with? you know, Criterion and Arbelos and uh, you know, maybe Eureka, Masters of Cinema. Like, are, like, are they are they pulling prints out to borrow to, to then, you know, put on disc and stuff from y'all in, in theory as well? Like, is that- Yeah, right. They, that, that is something that's done. I am probably the wrong person to ask about it just because as, you know, I'm, I'm involved in all of the collection management activities, but the, um, I'm pretty sure it would be our, um, our department's head of research information and access who would be the person who would be, you know, and obviously all the curator of our department, the head of our department would be involved in those kinds of um, deals and, and our preservation um, wing too. Um, but that, that definitely is done. I mean, I was just seeing, I was kind of look, trying to look up some of our, you know, recent-ish restorations that have been put on disc. Um, Cause I know that, you know, uh, Drifting was one from a few years ago that Kino Lorber put out a silent film and um, Three Women, which is upcoming, I think in the next month that's coming out from Kino. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and so what is your, what is your connection with Warner Brothers then? Uh, yeah. So I was trying to delve a little bit into this cause I, I, I gather that the, the connection goes back a long time. Um, yeah. because I think back in the seventies, there was some sort of informal agreement with at the time MGM, um, yeah. And so they deposited, um, you know, a, a ton of their films. You know, we have the original camera negative of Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz and a ton of these films. Oh, wow. um, and then that, that kind of um, existed until I think it was the 90s or around 2000 then when um, there was that agreement between Warner Brothers and MGM that then Warner Brothers then had um, the home uh, the, uh, rights to all of the pre 1986 or something, uh, oh, films. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's Warner brothers. And at that point, a, a more serious, um, agreement was then drafted and they actually support, you know, some of our staff, 
Um, so now it's a much more um, it's a much more set down in stone kind of agreement where we are sending them elements um, pretty regularly. Um, you know, just last month we were sending you know sending like forty reels or something um, out to their you know the lab that they use out in LA. Um, so it's yeah, it's a pretty regular as they do their. Um, they're scanning for, um, you know, films that they're putting out on Blu-ray. Um, they're, you know, accessing, we're shipping back and forth the elements from the archive. It was, it was kind of amazing when I first started working because I was seeing, I think at the time they were shipping back some, some elements and I was like, oh yeah, this just came out like a few months ago and this just came out, you know, so it's cool. It's yeah, very, it's, it's honestly, it's a dream job for me to be, um, you know, firsthand working with these materials as just, as a film fan, it's just, you know, it's a dream job to be here and to be, um, you know, working with these elements that are then used to, you know, make these Blu-rays so that everyone can see these fantastic restorations of these films. Yeah, for sure. I, um, speaking of that, because you mentioned earlier uh, the the connection with silent cinema and kind of the history there. Do you know if y'all have ever worked with Flickr Alley and, and some of the work they're doing? I do not know if the museum... If if any elements from the museum have been the basis for um, any Flickr Alley releases, I'm not sure. Okay. I know that I know that Kino Lorber has. Um, I should say too, a lot of the Kino Lorber's um, releases of David O. Selznick films um, are from the collection because we have a large collection of of David O. Selznick material. Um, but no, Flickr Alley, I'm not totally sure. I do know because I was looking the other day at some of the um, Russian films that Flickr Alley has put out. That yeah. are, so Peter, Peter Bagrov is the curator, the head of our department, and he's done a number of um, commentaries on those Flickr Alley discs. So that's a connection. That's funny. Okay. Uh, I, I know it's, I was surprised how small a world it is when you start getting into the actual, you know, these, these boutique companies that are putting out these releases. Uh, they all kind of know each other and work together. So it's no surprise, I guess, that they know you all as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. archive field and the film archiving field in general, I feel like is a very small family. <laughs> That's cool. Well, do you, as part of your training for the job that you get to go to Cinematheque Frances and see how they do things? You know, not, not for the Selznick program. I didn't, but I did in undergrad. Um, I did a very short study abroad in Paris and I got to go to the Cinematheque Frances and saw a little bit there, but it was really, it was before I had started any kind of archival training. So I, I would have appreciated it more now, <laughs> but. No, still, yeah, that's one of those places uh, that, I don't know, it just kind of has uh, a hold of my imagination. It's just like to think about a group of people getting together in the thirties, right? Or maybe early forties and just deciding that preservation was important. Oh, it's uh, incredible. So cool. Yeah, I was, I just a few, like a month ago or so, I read a biography on Henri Langlois, uh, who started it all. And it's just that whole story is just, kind of crazy and 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 wild and um I mean he just he loved film so much and um it's interesting I mean not to go off too much of a tangent but it is interesting because I was talking about the beginning of archives you know in the 30s and 40s and, it, yeah. and Henri Langlois is such a a prime example of like one side of this debate that raged for a long time about you know whether you know preservation or access should be the most important thing because Henri Langlois was all about showing films. He wanted everybody to see these films. And so he was screening, you know, one of a kind prints that at the time they're like, we don't have any other copy of this. And he was like screening it because it's like people need to see it. And then at BFI in London, 
um, Ernest Lindgren, who was like this other, you know, curator at the time for, I, I think it was the National Film Library at the time, was very much like the other side. So he's like, we need to preserve these films for posterity. You know, they will be damaged if they're screened. So like, we need to just like put them in the vault until at a time when we can copy them. And so it's interesting, like right from the beginning, there's this very like dichotomy of, of views on that. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it's a brand new debate for me, as, just as you're explaining it, but I think I'd fall on the side of access, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, it always has to be a balance, but I think I, yeah. I, there's a part of me that really, um, you know, feels a fellowship with, the, with a long, Langlois kind of side of things. I think there's a, there's a famous quote with Ernest Lindgren where someone, he had said something about preserving films for posterity and someone had basically asked him like, okay, but when does posterity start? You know, like when can we see these films? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, maybe it's like a more practical approach from the BFI versus a more romantic approach from, from Cinematheque Francaise or something of like, like, like the passion to like share this, this love of cinema with anybody who wants it um versus the more practical approach of keeping it for like your point for for what though keeping it for what if all you're doing is holding on to it i don't know that's interesting yeah what's the book called that you read what's the biography called i think remember? it was called a passion for film i think that was oh. the one yeah you have to check that out that's that's a cool story um and you're a collector yourself you showed me before the call started uh yes. what do you have a particular you know type of blu-ray you collect are you pretty diverse or um i i my main kind of focus is silent film and then hollywood films up through about 1960 that's pretty these days that's pretty much exclusively what i'm buying is in that range somewhere um just because those are the films that i love and those are the you know films that i get really excited about so uh, what what is it about uh, the '60s that starts to turn for you? Is it does it like what, <laughs> what is it what is it about the films up to that point or why? Oh, there? the end. Well, I mean, I, I think that those years roughly kind of you know work out to the 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 classical Hollywood studio system kind of film, um, which are just you know the movies that I've they're the feel good movies for me. Those are the movies that I kind of you know, I, I got into movies because my mom took me to the library as a kid and I could, you know, pick out old sci-fi, like fifties movies. And so that's how I got into film watching all these old Hollywood films. And that's still kind of, um, what draws me now. Um, and in the past few years, silent film, especially has been a huge draw. Um, talking to Captain Gibb, I know you've had him on has been really kind of nice. Cause he's shown me all he's, you know, shown me a ton of films that I otherwise wouldn't have seen. And obviously working at the museum is great for that because the, you know, the collection of silent film is amazing. But. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, I was surprised that, so there's the classic Hollywood kind of studio system. And then uh, just by total coincidence, I wound up mostly through Arrow Video, actually. I accidentally got into the Japanese studio system from like the 60s. Uh, oh. They have like this whole like Nikatsu studio and they, forget the number, but it's something crazy, like 110 films a year or something like that that they put wow. out. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of them are lost to time or just were no good, you know, whatever. But the ones that are kind of saved, it's this cool, you see the same actors popping up again and again, and you, you get the, like, you, you kind of can instantly kind of set yourself back into this time and, and you know, get into it in the way that it was experienced back then. It's kind of fun to revisit it. That is, yeah, that is definitely one of the pleasures of, of Hollywood movies too, is that, 
you know, when I, when I was a kid watching a ton of the, I mean, I, I consider Warner brothers movies from like the thirties and early forties to be my like sweet spot. It's my comfort food. It's what I go to if I need to pick me up. Um, but that's when I was thinking, watching those movies and seeing like, Oh, that's Abner Bieberman. Like I've seen him in all these or not even knowing the name and figuring out later it's Abner Bieberman. Who's like the gangster in all these different movies. But I love that about Hollywood films. When Letterboxd shows you your most uh, your most viewed actor is Abner Bieberman, <laughs> you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> right, yeah, this background actor who's been in everything I've seen. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, do you do you uh, keep track of how big your collection is? Like, you know, is that something that you like kind of keep track of? I have spreadsheets, but they're very idiosyncratic. And honestly, I should. I have a very old. Um, I have not been keeping my Letterboxd account up to date. I used to have just a list of all the films that I had. Now what I do is I have I have a spreadsheet that's all the films that I want to watch that I own. Um, and then I have a spreadsheet of every single silent film and like silent film short and silent film fragments. I have a spreadsheet that keeps track of all of that. But I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't have a spreadsheet for everything altogether. At some point, I'll probably have to do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. If nothing else, for insurance purposes. Um, <laughs> right. Oh gosh, I think about that. Yeah. I have a my. I've been collecting for about twenty years now, and I just passed forty eight hundred uh, titles. And wow. I about ten years ago or so, I was like, yeah, you know what? I need to. I need to get this insured just in case. I would. I would cry for a long time if I couldn't oh, replace. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but um. Okay. So you met. You talked about borrowing from the library. What what is that? Because people can actually borrow from George Eastman, right? Isn't isn't it, don't you have some kind of a library system there? Well, there are, it's there are film loans. Say like you're a venue and you're screening a film. Um, oh, okay, like that. Yes, yeah, you can. Um, and and there's a kind of process that um, you know venues go through basically because a lot of these films are just. Um, you know, they're they're one of a few prints of this film, and so. The museum is pretty cautious about about lending them out, but obviously it does to a ton of you know screening venues around the country. Um, but if you're a collector and you have you know an eight millimeter reel at home, you can't just like walk in and, and ask to borrow a particular you know clip or a particular reel and, and watch it. No, like, no. I yeah. mean, if you're if you're the other thing that happens a lot is that if you're a researcher that's looking at a specific topic or you're researching and you know mm -hmm. we have this film in our collection that doesn't exist anywhere else, you can you know, come in and, um, and see it that way. Um, but just walking in, no. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so this might be an obvious question to you and, and you know, maybe to people listening, but I'm always interested in this. So, you know, we, we have this Blu-ray sitting at home, right? From like WB archive, for example, right? Um, do you know sort of like, what's the process for getting it to disc? So the first thing is that they're gonna reach out to y'all they, they have a, a couple titles in mind or, you know, whatever, and they know that it's in y'all's lab. So they're going to reach out to y'all. Do you then sort of look at the print before you send it to see if it's ready for, you know, production or like, what's that kind of process like before, before you send it off? Yeah. In terms of the archive work. So what I'd be doing is we, we definitely do um, like outgoing inspections and then incoming inspections too, when stuff comes back. Um, so on my end, you know, it's pretty much the, you know, we see that a certain film is going to go out. So we'll have an inspect, you know, an outgoing inspection of it and then pack up the reels. 
Um, and the majority of the Warner Brothers material is nitrate. So that needs to be shipped in a very specific way with all these. There's a lot of regulations about that because oh, nitrate really? is a hazardous material. Um, oh, it's explosive, so I, right? Yeah, it's extremely flammable. So I had to go through training to get the nitrate shipping, um, you know, instructions. So I was able to right when I got hired, um, because it's just there's a lot of labels that you have to have on everything, and you can only ship certain quantities of it and everything. Um, so the yeah, so the inspection and then the shipping um, is coordinated on my end, and then I mean my understanding of a lot of that stuff is that then it goes to their facilities to be to be scanned. Um, there and then the you know the creation of the the digital file and then I don't know too much at all about how that's mastered into a Blu-ray disc, but no, that's that's fine. Yeah, that's, that's that first kind of part is what I was interested in because I'm thinking of like you know they Arrow got rid of the Arrow Academy line. They 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 said that they've merged it into their main line, so we'll see. But between Arrow, uh, Kino Lorber, you mentioned they're a huge one. Uh, you know, Flicker Alley. Um, Grasshopper. I don't know if they're mostly more modern films, but oh, Milestone is another one I was thinking of. But there's some of these companies that are, you know, they focus in a lot of older Hollywood cinema. Um, and it's just interesting. I mean, I guess unless you're associated with the studio, you always have to start with the archives, right? And that's where you're yeah, from. Well, exactly. And, and, it, and I think a big part of that too, is that, you know, you see a lot of films, um, older films that are released on Blu-ray that are, you know, a new restoration. Um, where it's like a lot of this restoration work is done by the archive. Mm, okay. you know, they're funded, they perform the restoration, they did, they scan the film, they do the, you know, in a lot of cases, the digital cleanup. Um, and then they, you know, work with a, you know, a home video distribution company to put that out on Blu-ray. But a lot of times, so it's, it's a, you know, as a film archivist and a Blu-ray a collector, it's really interesting because it's, you know, I know that there's a lot, there's a ton of restorations every year of a lot of really interesting, incredible films. And most of them obviously don't come out on Blu-ray. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Um, so that's one of the kind of frustrating things, you know, I'm always thinking about is that I wish, and I know a lot of it is just the market. Um, but there's a lot, for instance, like the, the Academy, you know, five, six years ago, did a restoration of um, The Racket, a silent film with, I think it's an early sound. I've never seen it, but I want to. But they did a restoration mm -hmm. of that film and they showed it at MoMA and there's DCPs of it. So if you're a venue, you can, you know, screen this film, but it's not available on home video at all. Um, the restoration isn't at least. Oh, super interesting. So are there ways, uh, and again, I'm not trying to get too detailed, just at a very high level, mm -hmm. are there ways for people that are on the commercial side of maybe like the production of the discs to, to, you know, learn like what restorations have been done? Like, is there some kind of like portal or something where they log into and be like, okay, you know, these are the restorations that have been done? I, or how is that even communicated? Right. No, I, I really wish that was the case because I think okay. that a, a lot of the um, communication does come down to um, you know, the decision maker at Kino or the producer at Kino Lorber, like Brett would say, talking to, um, you know, George Williman at Library of Congress, say, and saying, you know, what, what films, you know, what would be a good prospect for something, you know, to, to put out on Blu-ray. And, and what, what has been restored recently. I mean, there are, I think a lot of people, a lot of, um, 
a lot of it is done through just what is screened at festivals. Like Bologna is a big showcase for restorations. Um, Portanone, um, the the um, Portanone Silent Film Festival is a big showcase for restorations. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of it is seen that way. You know, something will screen at one of these um, at one of these old film festivals, and then you know a year or so later it'll come out. Um, which leads me to believe that, you know, the people working for the home video companies are, you know, aware of the film, that the restoration, because it's been screened, and then they um, work to bring it out. Um, but I do, you know, when, when you say that, I do wish there was just a database with every time there's a restoration, it gets added to this database, you know. Yeah, because, we, so one of the earlier interviews we did, there was uh, people that are trying to get, like, let's say the rights to Japanese films. There is a, a, I don't know how sophisticated it is, I've never used it, but there is a, a general sort of database of sort of, you know, these Japanese prints that have been restored recently. And we're, we're, and there's like, you know, people fighting over some of these prints or, uh, mm. you know, there's a big push right now to put some of these like Cat 3 movies out from Hong Kong. These really like super gory, like, you know, uh, kind of exploitation films. And there's a, there's a, just sort of like a, not an auction, but like an open kind of portal where people can go in and, and fight for the rights to these movies. Um, so it's a shame that that doesn't exist uh, from the archive because I feel like y'all would have the movies that people would be very familiar with. Like I feel like there would be uh, a market there just in putting out all these old classic Hollywood stuff. Because some of them, like like there was just a post today where Arsenic and Old Lace has not had a Blu-ray released yet. I just right. think that's super yeah. interesting. Oh yeah. And that one, I, ha I have to think that that is in the works for one of these companies somewhere. I have to think, I, I don't know who owns the rights for that, but I have to think that that's in the works. Um, the thing that I've really liked seeing um, in terms of silent film, at least, is that, um, you know, as we're entering each new year, a bunch of um, silent films enter the public domain. Um, I, think, I think we're on now, as of January 1st of this year, I think a ton of films from 1926 or that were publicly that were published in 1926 um, are now in the public domain. And so the good oh. thing about that, yeah, the good thing about that is any enterprising, um, you know, home video company that can pay for the, that to do, you know, their, their uh, scanning and restoration of, of a certain film then can put it out without having to worry about rights at all. Um, and the thing I was going to bring up, the thing that is really great about that is that there's been a lot, all of these um, Kickstarter, um, the Kickstarters okay. that are funding, um, bringing silent films um, to out on DVD and Blu-ray, um, especially with the, working with the Library of Congress, because I think they've been very good about that. Um, I know that um, under Crank Productions, I don't know if Captain Gibb has ever brought them up, but it, Ben Modell, who's like a very famous... Um, silent film accompanist has this company under crank productions um, yeah. and they have done a number of kickstarters um, and I think there's another guy who's associated with it Ed LaRusso I think his name is um, where they have um, kickstarted these films to basically to pay for the scanning at LOC um, and then and then putting them out on it's mainly been DVD but I think a few of them have been blu-ray um, and it's a lot of these films have been like Marion Davies films that have not been seen in a long, long time and have been unavailable. So it's really great to see that sort of thing happen. Well, it, nine, uh, sorry. Yes, that's, that's amazing. Uh, and I'm thinking, wasn't the jazz singer 1927? It was. Yeah. 
So we're getting really close to some sound films then also being, I mean, I know there were shorts that had sound already by 26, but in terms of even features. Right. Yeah, it's coming up. And so is uh, whenever Steamboat Willie came out. Uh-huh. Okay. Which we'll okay. see yeah. we'll see we'll see how things go there because um you know Disney is quite litigious and interested in their um films. That's but. a great point though. Yeah, like if there is I mean there's years of precedent set for these films being in public domain, right? The copyrights only go for for so long. So oh, right. super interesting. Um okay, so it, what does it? What does that mean, though? Like, let's say there was a film from, let's say there was like a Lubitsch film or something, right? That, that people wanted to put out now, uh, from the '40s. Is, are you saying that because it's not public domain, there would be a licensing cost on top of the production through whatever studio owned the rights? Is that the difference? Yes, that's how I understand it, at least. And my yeah. my knowledge of copyright is very basic, but I but that's how I understand it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But with the public domain, basically, you still have to, the only thing you're not worrying about is the licensing cost. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm surprised where people haven't jumped into silent film. That must speak of maybe the commercial viability of it or something. But Right, right. Um, so you, you kind of spoke about this a little bit, but what, what do you go to, what's your go-to to relax? Either like a movie or a, or a, you know, a genre or something. You had a long day. Um, yeah. Is it movies or what, what is it? Yeah, what do you, what's your, <laughs> like? Oh, definitely. I mean, Yes, there's a there's a particular flavor to Warner Brothers movies that were made in the for me it's like the sweet spot is like 1935 to 1941. Right? Like okay. before okay. the US got into the war. <laughs> okay. um, it's just it's just this great comforting you can tell they use the same sets and a lot of the same actors in the background the character actors for these sort of things and of course warner brothers was making these you know ripped from the headlines crime stories um that i just feel like are it's this kind of um i don't know it's this kind of like dream space you tap into where it's like you're seeing the same backgrounds but these different plots that are kind of the same keep happening so it's like for me I love just watching and re-watching and re-watching these films um because they are just they're so enjoyable I, I don't mean to put you on the spot but do you have like a, a title or two that comes to mind like to just top ahead when you're speaking about them oh, yeah one of my favorites is City for Conquest with Jimmy Cagney okay um, he's a, yeah he's a boxer whose brother played by Arthur Kennedy is like this kind of up and coming composer, but they're living out in Delancey street and everything's hard. And he's like trying to drive trucks to like support his brother. And then there's like his, his opponent in the ring uses some dirty tricks that like blinds him. <laughs> like I don't want to give it away, but that that's a city for conquest is a great one. Um, there's a ton with Edward G Robinson too. I mean, he's one of those faces yeah. that I can just watch over and over again, but. Yeah, he's a phenomenal actor. Yeah, I, I mean, this has all been super interesting. I think, you know, Kirk, that leads me to one of the questions, and you've kind of touched on it a little bit with your experience, but, you know, I, I know a lot of people have asked in previous interviews we've done, you know, how do we get this job? Like, how, you know, how do I go get this job? Whether they're in high school now or whether they're in college and want to switch majors or, or maybe 40, like I'm, I'm 40 this year and just want to switch careers. So do you have any recommendations? I mean, is yeah, how, how do people get your job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, so I went through the Selznick School here at the George Eastman Museum. There are a number of other programs that are kind of um, graduate programs, I should say, that are tailored to film preservation and film archiving. 
Um, there is the library school at UCLA. Um, previously, I think it was called something else, but I know that they, you know, have a strong um, program for film preservation. Um, and also and NYU, also NYU. Um, has a specific program for film archiving. Um, there's also a very big one in Amsterdam that I know a lot of people who live in Europe go to. Um, but I would say, you know, for people who are kind of um, just trying to, that are maybe younger and trying to head that direction, um, definitely um, like local archives, um, especially if you're at a university, almost every university has some kind of archive or another. And most archives have some sort of moving image collection of one kind or another. So it's, I mean, that's the, the direction I, I took because I, I kind of knew from early on that I wanted to eventually get into film archiving is that, um, and I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and they had a, a archive there, um, they, a film archive. Um, and so I just, you know, wanted to get involved with them. And I think that I probably ended up getting into the Selznick School because I was involved in this archive before and I probably got the LOC job because I did this program. So it's, this is definitely like many fields, it's like one thing leads to another and everything kind of builds. And so I think that entry point um, for a lot of people can be, can be a local archive. Thank you, that's, that's great advice. Um, I, honestly, that's, that's most of the questions I had. What, uh, what do people wanna, what should people know about Eastman? What are y'all up to coming up? Yeah, the one thing I wanted to just talk about briefly is um, hopefully this spring, um, everything is on track for the um, Nitrate Picture Show, um, which was an annual thing here, just started a few years ago, but obviously has been on hiatus for the past two years, um, where it's a festival over a weekend. Um, this year, it's going to be June 2nd through June 5th, um, and where a bunch of um, nitrate uh, prints are screened in the Dryden, which is our theater here. Um, and if you've never seen um, nitrate film projected in theater, which most people haven't because um, it stopped being the, the base for film in about 1951. Um, okay. It's an incredible experience. Visually, it's just kind of dazzling. Um, it's a lot of people attribute it to, I believe it's, it's possible there was more silver <laughs> um, in the, you know, in the films that, that were nitrate base. Um, okay. but it's, it's, it's a great experience and the schedule is kind of, um, hidden until the festival opens. So I can't really rep any particular films. Um, but it's a great, it's a great festival. And, um, if you're in the area, I definitely recommend it. Wow. Okay. That sounds great. I would, yeah. I might have to make it. When is it? You said generally spring, is it like March kind of April? Yeah. This year, I believe it's June 2nd through June 5th. Great. Okay. I'll have to see what I'm doing that weekend, but um yeah i mean thanks so much uh for for making some time for this this has been a quick uh one-on-one -on -one course for me here uh, i've loved every second of it so thank you thanks so much for having me it's been a great time